Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks guys. Talk to you soon. If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Build Your Network podcast. We have some great things in store for you on today's midweek mashup episode. Today we're talking about the business of show business. If you want to know how to make it in the entertainment industry, how to stand out, and some incredible stories from people who have toured with famous artists or produced incredible television channels, you need to listen to today's episode. First up is Michael Roderick, who went from English teacher to Broadway producer in, get this, just two years. Next up is George Shepard, who has headlined with incredible artists and toured all over the world. And last but not least is Art Bell. His journey started at CBS, then went to HBO, where he started the Comedy Channel, which eventually became Comedy Central. After that, he became the president of Court TV and has worked as a consultant to several television companies. His first book, Constant Comedy, documents his experience building one of the most successful channels in history. I really hope you guys appreciate the value on today's episode. And remember, if you get one piece of value from today's show, be sure to take a screenshot, post to your Instagram stories, and tag Travis with the handle at Travis Chapel. All right, guys, let's get into the show. 
I studied the industry and I looked at the thing that nobody else was doing. So in Broadway, the way it works is you raise money to become a Broadway producer. And when you raise a certain amount of money, you get a credit on a show. You either get your name above the title or you get your name next to other producers. So what I noticed was that a lot of my colleagues at the time were really focused on going to other producers and saying, I want credit. And what I decided to do was go to producers and say, I'm actually not interested in credit. I just want to get better at raising money. So I ended up getting a lot more deal flow because I wasn't really pushing to have my name on anything. So I got a chance to practice that process. And because I was so good at helping those producers attain their success, helping them solve their problems, I was offered a producing credit significantly faster than a lot of other producers. Yeah, imagine that. You gave a lot and then it came back to you. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> yeah, which really brings us a natural transition into talking about networking because this obviously is built to network podcast where we that's really the bulk of what we like to talk about here. So let's just go ahead and dive right into that conversation. And because I'm interested to hear a lot of your answers for all of this, and this is the question I ask everybody to get the conversation headed in that direction. Do you believe that what you know or who you know is more important, Michael, and why? I believe that both are incredibly important. I don't think one sort of goes over the other. I think that you taking the time to learn from other people is one of the things that will help you become successful in relationship building. And that will inform who you get to know. Because the more that you study the people around you and the more that you start to understand the things that work for them and, and help them, the easier it is to figure out who to connect them to. And then they'll want to connect you to people who are similar. So I'm a very, very firm believer in the fact that people who sort of just push towards making connections with influencers or sort of pushing the idea of going for the people who are at the top of the hierarchy is the way to success. I'm a very firm believer in that not being the case. I think that some of the most influential and most powerful people are often the ones who do not put themselves very far out in the spotlight and are not seen as influencers in the traditional sense, but actually able to really make some major things happen. Mm -hmm. And those people you only get to know if you develop real relationships, you take the time to really get to know somebody and understand yeah, yeah. them as opposed to looking at their job title or looking at kind of where they are. So what would be like the guiding principle for you there, Michael? Like when you're trying to quote unquote network and quote unquote build relationships, what's like the main principle that you focus on in order to make it a real genuine connection with somebody? Sure. So I really pay attention to the type of person that I'm dealing with. And I basically break it down into four categories. And pretty much every person I meet is in one of these four categories in that first meeting. And some people will change categories over time. And it's just A, B, C, and D. So my A's are my advocates. And these are the people who I can tell that they are just as invested and interested in what it is that I'm doing what it is that I'm working on as whatever their goals are, whatever their projects are. And they're very thoughtful and they want to help you. They want to support you. Your bees are your boomerangs who are a little more transactional in nature and a little more networky as opposed to being connectors, which is more about sort of helping people succeed. And your C's are your celebrities. And these are the folks who many times others are reaching out, trying to connect with those people, trying to meet those types of people. And the D's are the drains. And these are the people who are 
at a point in their life where they can't really think about anything else other than asking. So they're in such a high state of need that really your interaction with them is going to be mainly them telling you about what they need. And one of the things that I want to make really clear, because I think this comes up a lot, is people sort of see that last category as, oh, well, that's the energy those are the takers, those are the bad people. And I love to point out the fact that we have all had to be a drain at some point in our lives because we've all had times where we were in such a high state of pain, we really could only receive at that time. We really were having a lot of trouble thinking about others and all those different types of things. So I think it's important to understand that there are some times where folks are not going to be able to be as conscious and as thoughtful in their giving because there are other things going on in their lives. Hmm. I love that ABCD thing. Is that something that you picked up somewhere? Where did you start hearing that? We're talking about that. So basically, over time, I started to notice just very specific patterns. So I built that framework for myself. I started to say, okay, how would I break this down? And how would I make it easy for others to understand it? Because that's a big part of my work is all about thinking, how do I make something accessible? How do I make something easy for others to understand? So that's where that came from. I started saying, okay, well, what are the categories that I'm encountering? And then I said, okay, how would I break down those categories? And then I realized ABCD is very easy to remember. So all I needed to do was come up with a title that attached to each of those letters based on the type of individual that I was encountering. At what point along the way did that ambition change from, hey, this is something that's fun and it's a cool hobby to, I think we can really do something with this? I think it was when we we, we decided to, oh, we got our first gig, that's right. We, we'd you know put the music out there. And I think through the songs that she'd written for the assignment, somebody else at the university was like, hey, you guys, these songs are great. Do you want to perform them at this event that we're putting on? And we were like, oh, wow, okay, we've actually, you know, without even trying, we've, we've gotten this gig. We probably should put a band together for this, <laughs> you know, that, that type of like, <laughs> you know, piecing it together. Yeah, yeah. What, what, was, it a, was it a paid gig or was it free? It was a free gig, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it was just something that, that we were asked to do and we were like, oh, okay, why, yeah, sounds why not fun, give it right. a go? Yeah, it sounds fun. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's, let's try and put a band together. And so the next member of the band was, was Jay Bovino, who's, who's still in the band today. He's one of the lead songwriters. You know, he's, he's like the third official decision maker of the band, I guess. It's like a bit of a democracy. And he was the younger brother of one of my acting friends in Sydney when I was living in Sydney. So I knew that he was great with music and he could play the guitar and he could write songs. So I asked him to come up to Brisbane and, and play bass guitar for this band that we were putting together for this, for this event. And he, he very graciously, I mean, he, this guy can play a million instruments and the bass guitar is one of the easier ones. So it's like uh, he was just doing us a favor to come up and, you know, for two weeks he was going to rehearse and play this gig with us and then head back down to Sydney. Mm-hmm. But the two weeks that he was staying at our house, we, we just started writing songs. And two weeks turned into two years that he was wow. living at our house in Brisbane. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> what was he was he doing years, something? We were like, hey, was he like doing yeah. something at the time? Was he working or like like, like <laughs> he just decided to come up and start practicing? <laughs> and then he was like, you know what? Well, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna chill here for two years, bro. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, I mean, he he never had a proper job. He was always uh okay. in bands and, and it was I mean, he was like a dedicated musician trying to make it as a, okay gotcha. as a guitarist and a songwriter so so he had he had time up his up his sleeve yeah 
Cool, cool. Yeah, so we're two years, you know, he, he sat around uh, making music with us and we wrote the first album as Shepherd with, with him living in our house. So that was like, I guess, the point where we were, when, when Jason joined the band, I guess that was the point that we were like, okay, I feel like we've got a really solid team of songwriters here. Let's let's give this a real crack. Let's try and make this uh, a full-time job. Yeah. So coming out of that, what was the next step? Because I feel like a lot of people get to this step, right? So I, I, I don't yeah. know this 100% to be true, but I see a lot of talented people, you know, just in like a hotel bar that are playing live music. And it's just like, wow, that is like, this guy's super talented, like just, just tears up the guitar, has an mm-hmm. amazing voice. And, uh, it, but then it, it just stops there. And yeah. not because their ambition lacks, but maybe the know-how or relationships or songwriting, maybe like, I don't know exactly what it is. What, mm-hmm. what was the next thing that took you guys to the next level? Well, I think, I think f- for sure it, it always starts with the music. It starts with the song. Uh, nothing good can come from a, a, a mediocre song. Like you can be the most amazing musician in the world. You can shred the guitar. You can be the greatest singer and have an amazing tone and, you know, hit all the notes, do all the runs. But if you, if you're not releasing music that people want to listen to, then it's not going to lead you anywhere. So I think we spent a lot of time focusing on that songwriting craft and writing a hit, a hundred songs that were, were terrible and, uh, you know, a hundred more songs that were, were okay. And then a hundred more songs that were like, okay, we can probably show some people these songs. And we just made sure that we had the songwriting part nailed and we wanted to show people music that we, we felt was like different or unique in some way. And then we got fortunate in a sense, we, we got kind of lucky. Our primary school music teacher was, was following what we were doing. And he, you know, we, we've kept in touch with him since we were, you know, kids because we grew up in Papua New Guinea, I should probably mention that we, we actually grew up in, in a, a nation above Australia called Papua New Guinea. And our music teacher there had toured with some, some bigger bands back in the day in Australia. And the guy who promoted some of the bands that he, he was in, his name's Michael Chug. He's a bit of a legend here in Australia for, you know, bringing out bands like U2 and Coldplay. And he, he's a bit of a, he's like the second most influential person in the music industry in Australia. And our primary school music teacher still knew of Michael Chug from his days back in touring. And because he'd known that we'd been doing the music thing, he decided to send our music onto Michael Chug and nothing came back. He, I guess, you know, gets these kind of offers all the time, you know, listen to this band, listen to this band. But to his credit, our music teacher just kept on hounding him, kept on sending him the music. And I guess to shut him up, Michael Chug was like, all right, bring him in for one, one audition. They can come and play a couple of songs to me in yeah. my office and we'll see what they got. So we and, had- and when, and when was this? So on the timeline, right? So you said you're 21, 22, yeah. you start writing a little bit with your sister and then you bring out this third member of the band starts writing some songs with you, playing the guitar right. or whatever. And then you start writing songs, you write and write and write and write and write and you mm-hmm. go through a hundred songs. All of them are terrible, but then you get some ones that you're like, Hey, these are pretty good. Mm-hmm. And so you start releasing these, then your music teacher starts sending them out, but he gets a no first and starts like, so how much, like how much time has progressed? And yep. like, how old are you? What time frame are we looking at when so he actually is, gives you a chance to audition for him? Uh, Amy and I would have done the assignment thing back then. And then uh, Jason would have joined in 2011. And then uh, I guess we, we, we would have auditioned for Michael Chug 2012, 2012. Okay. And then, yeah, so we all, we all flew down to Sydney, 
put on our Sunday best, you know, combed our hair nice. And This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. And walked into this office of this like music mega manager promoter. He was he was a pretty intimidating guy. He's about he's 70 years old now. Uh, and he's really gruff and, you know, every video that I'd seen of him on the internet, he's, he's like the kind of promoter who gets up on the microphone and he starts yelling at people in the crowd and swearing. And it was just like the most nerve wracking situation to walk into his office and just try and impress him. Right. It was just like the most, I guess, crippling feeling knowing that this guy is just sitting there judging you. Uh, <laughs> and, he, and he brought us in and then he, he invited his entire staff, which is like 30 to 40 people into the into the big conference room and they all sat down and, and listened to us play like five songs acoustically which was um yeah it was definitely throwing us in the deep end <laughs> <laughs> that's um, crazy so how yeah. did, how, at the time how did you feel it went did you, did you like leave there going like hey we nailed that i felt like we did a good job but then we didn't hear from him for weeks he just went yeah, all right thanks for that you know yeah, great great job nice songs see you later and then we left and that was like, well, I guess that was that. And it's yeah, like, you back know, to the drawing from, board. Yeah. Yeah. Coming from an acting perspective, you go, you go for auditions all the time and don't hear anything. So mm. you don't hear anything unless you get the role pretty much. So right. that's kind of the mentality that I was, I was harboring. That's what, that's what yeah. I was kind of going, okay, well, I guess we haven't heard anything for a couple of weeks. We, we didn't get the audition. We didn't get the role. And then I think it was about a month or two later, we had a show on in Brisbane and we get an email from Michael Chug saying, Hey, I saw you've got a show. I'd love to come up and check it out. And so we're like, Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. Come, you know, we'll get and put your name on the list, bring whoever you want. And uh, Michael 
came with with another one of the managers from his office and somebody else, some one of his advisors or somebody. I uh, she she runs like the promotion side of his company, and the three of them sat in the back of the room and just watched our entire show. And then we saw him afterwards, and he said, "All right, well now that I know you can perform, we're in business." And that was the beginning of it. I mean, he he took us on as as a band. We, he was our manager, and I think wow. that was that was the real that was the changing point. That was like the gear shift that we needed for our band. He was able to use his contacts worldwide to put us on all sorts of amazing festivals, and uh, he started organizing shows for us in London and South Africa and USA. And uh, I think that was like the real that was the real turning point for us as a as a band. That's what that's that's the moment that sort of rubber hit the road. You're an economist, oh, still over on the East Coast. What happens next? Like, how do you end up producing television shows in Los Angeles? I was an economist, and um, I, as I said, I liked I liked being an economist. I got to work with smart people, and I'd done it for three years. And one day, at the end of the three years, I was sitting at my desk reading Cole Weekly, thinking, "I'm not sure I want to do this for the rest of my life." Uh, and that's, again, when I started thinking about, well, what do I want to do? And maybe I should rethink the idea of going into television, film, comedy, something that I had been thinking about before I got involved with economics. So I literally changed the channel and went to business school. I thought that would be a good way to <laughs> stop working and then explore some other things, including, you know, film and television. Nobody told me at the time that getting an MBA was not a, the the quickest ticket to to uh, film television jobs. As a matter of fact, mm-hmm. most of the most of my my friends were either going to Wall Street or uh, you know big marketing or consulting firms, and television companies weren't coming around to interview on these places. They just they I, for whatever reason that wasn't the way to do it. So I I was one of the last guys to get a job, and I got a, a job at CBS finally in finance which was not something I wanted to do. But again, you know, I was hell bent on being in the entertainment business. And I'm still in the East Coast. I'm, I'm in New York and I'm working at CBS. And I remember I took the job at half the, the salary I had been making in Washington, D.C. when I left yeah. two years earlier to go to business school. And I remember my father saying, okay, you're taking this job. You're getting paid half. What's the plan? Right. Because he, you know, obviously didn't see what the heck was going on. I said, don't worry. I want to be in the television business. This is all going to work out. I hung up and thought, I hope I'm right. (laughs) But I was right because what happened next is I I didn't really like working in finance at CBS, but a friend of mine who had been working with me, and I know this is a big emphasis of of your show, went to HBO. And about two months after he got there, he called me up. He says, you got to come over here. It's great. And they're looking for somebody who knows how to do economic forecasting. And he said, I think you're the only guy I ever met in the entertainment business who claims to know how to do that. So I went over there, interviewed, got the job, and suddenly I'm out of the gigantic monolithic corporate CBS, and I'm I'm at HBO, which is a small, relatively new at that point, it was mid-80s, extremely successful television company where people were walking down the halls, not only high-fiving because they were so successful, but saying, we have, we are going to change television. We are going to change the way people watch, how they think about it. We're going to change everything about it. And that's what they were in the process of doing. It was very exciting. Yeah, no kidding. Very exciting. That said, I was stuck doing econometric forecasting of subscribers for HBO, which, you know, again, that's what I was trying to not do when I left Washington. But right. 
I wanted to get close to the product. And HBO, you know, that was around the time they started doing those stand-up specials with Robert Klein and George Carlin and Billy Crystal and, and, and uh, Whoopi and Robin Williams. And they were great. And they yeah. were really kind of changing the model of what comedy was on television. Because before that, you couldn't put those guys on TV with their acts because they were, you know, they had foul language. They right, had right. matter that you couldn't talk about on network. Suddenly, HBO's doing this uncut and everybody loves it. So I was, right. I was close. So what was, what was the next, the next step after that then? So, cause you're doing something that you don't really enjoy, but you're working at the place and in the industry that you want to be in, which is a step in the right direction. So, so what, what happens after that? Well, I, I had been thinking, uh, and I skipped this part a little bit. When I came out of school, I was thinking what I'd really like to do is work for some comedy channel. Why is there no comedy channel? That was around the time, you know, there was an all music channel. There was an all news channel. There was an all sports channel. Where was the all comedy channel? Remember, I was still in love with comedy. And I, uh, while I was in business school, I wrote a comedy, a musical comedy review called The Wharton Follies, which was very successful that year. And it, I had so much fun writing it. It reminded me how much I love comedy. But there was no comedy network. And I assumed any minute someone was going to start one. So when I got to HBO, I figured, OK, I'm going to start talking about this comedy network and see if I can't get anybody to, you know, to kind of jump onto this idea with me. I talked about it a little bit. Nobody really thought it was such a great idea. So finally, I said, I am going to go pitch the head of HBO programming, which was you know, kind of a big deal because I was not very senior in the organization, right, to say the right. word, very junior. And she was, a, you know, her name was Bridget. And she was, she was kind of, she was tough. And she had a reputation as being tough. And uh, that didn't stop me. I went in there. And I said, you know, Bridget, I think HBO should do an all comedy network. And she said, stop right there. That's the worst idea I ever heard. Let me tell you why. And she proceeded to tell me why for about 10 minutes. You know, no decent comedian would be on it. Nobody wants to watch that much comedy. There's plenty of comedy on, the, on other channels, you know, on and on. And then she said, you know, thanks for stopping by. Take care. And I walked out. And that was, you know, what could have been the end. But I just knew she was wrong. I still knew somebody was going to start one. And I figured this isn't going to die right here. I went back to my office. I started thinking about, OK, well, I'm going to end up getting another job eventually. Why don't I send out my resume with a description of this comedy network, which I, at this point I'd been thinking about in great detail, financially, what it would look like, what the programming could be, yeah. what the, uh, you know, how it would work. And so I wrote that all up. And my boss's boss caught me working on it one night. And said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm writing up this thing. He said, let me see. And he said, the chairman of HBO should see this. To make a long story short, the chairman of HBO saw it and liked it and uh, said, let's give it a try. So that's how we got the go-ahead to do Comedy Channel. Now, mind you, I, at this point, have no comedy business experience. None. Zero. And suddenly, I'm thrown in with some guys, some people, in a group who are going to put this channel together, who were in the comedy business for 10 years. They knew so much more than me. I was like, the first thing they said to me is, what do you know about comedy? And they were right. I didn't know much other than I liked it. And they weren't really willing to teach me. Comedy was kind of a closed club. You know, you were, yeah, you, were right. or you were an agent or, you know, you were a programmer, but, you know, you weren't a financial analyst. And uh, that was that was something I didn't expect. And I had to work through that for for quite a long time for the first year. Anyway, did you do anything in particular to work through that? 
Well, it's a process of teaching yourself. I mean, um, I, I mean, as if, as in, like, did were were you trying to learn more about comedy and like how to write and tell jokes, or were you trying to learn no, more no. about the business of comedy and how it to really present about, it to it, audiences? It was really about the business of comedy. The, okay. Nobody was asking me to be funny as part of yeah. my job. What they were asking me to do was to evaluate what was funny, to work on acquiring funny material, and thinking about new avenues of comedy and more than anything else, to think about what a comedy channel should be, how it should be marketed, how what kind of brand it should be, what the audience would be for it. I mean, we were starting from scratch. Nobody knew anything about it. The guys who came in from the comedy business, one of them was named Stu Smiley. He was the head of comedy for HBO. He wasn't really good at that stuff, the stuff I was just talking about, sort of envisioning what a channel would look like. But he knew everything about the business. He knew all the comedians and agents personally. So we were teamed up, but really felt to me to, um, you know, and, and sort of my team to help figure out what the channel would be. Uh, and that's what I did. Yeah. So, uh, can you kind of give us, you know, obviously it went fairly well, uh, because comedy central is still the, you know, sole provider of comedy, uh, in, you know, for, especially in terms of any network, that's for sure. So, um, it obviously went pretty well. Can you kind of just tell us what the journey was like, you know, start to finish and, and, and then where you ended up going after you were done working on that project? Yeah. Well, first I'd like to disagree a little bit. It didn't go very well. The first month we were, uh, we, after we launched comedy, we were savaged by the press. This isn't funny. HBO's made a huge blunder. They called us the gong channel. Uh, They were having so much fun saying that it was a swing and a miss. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book. You know, I wrote the book, uh, which is called Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. And the Lost My Sense of Humor part is about that first year. It was so Mm -hmm. difficult. And I went to work every day thinking they were going to pull the plug that today was the day they were going to call me and say, you know, it's over. This isn't working. We're not making money. So nice try, but you're fired. Amazingly, that didn't happen. What did happen is after the first year, we got some competition. MTV decided they were going to launch a comedy network. So they launched six months after we did. And um, six months after that, we merged. And that was not my idea. I actually thought we were, uh, we were fighting the good fight the press was calling it the comedy wars and it was you know clear that there was only going to be one co- comedy network at the end of the process right and we thought we were going to win you know we thought comedy channel was going to prevail not mtv's channel which was called ha the comedy network but they merged us and they called me in and said you and your opposite number that are programming at at mtv networks channel are going to be teamed up you guys are going to create the new channel you can't call it comedy channel you got to figure out which programming to use and basically you got to start all over again hire new people you know hire people from the the the, uh, respective channels that you want and fire the rest of them i mean that was almost as difficult as starting the channel in the first place yeah no kidding getting that But that's what we did. Uh, We did get the merger going, found out very quickly how to work with each other, even though we had different concepts of what a comedy network should be. We figured out what the merger would look like. We renamed the channel. We relaunched, you know, and uh, then the rest is history. It it started going well. We had enough resources to do what we needed. And uh, 30 years later, 
and the channel's still up, and I'm very proud of that. That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with Travis and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapel.com slash group to join his free Facebook group, Podcast to Profit. Travis will see you there, and remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.